together. And let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20. Youth, you're going to remain with us today. If you're visiting with us, if you need a Bible, that's right. Thank you. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. You don't have a Bible. We have those that you can use or um, have if you don't have a Bible. Um, We use the New King James Version, not because we believe it's the only version, but it's just what we use. And so just for you to know that. It's always nice to be able to follow along in the, in, the, in the scriptures, verse by verse. Since we go verse by verse, it's nice to be able to follow along. And if also, if you're visiting with us, we stand just out of reverence for the word of God as we read it, and then um, we sit down after that. You don't have to stand the whole time, that's for sure. Except me, I have to stand the whole time, but um, actually I don't have to, but I choose to. So, Proverbs chapter 20, let's begin in verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. It is honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with bread. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. There is, a, there is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you said, Jesus, it will outlive the heavens and the earth. And what a privilege it is, Father, to have you build our lives upon your word. Help us, Father, to be ready to obey your word. Help us to measure our maturity against what we obey not what we agree with, as we can so easily do. We ask, Father, your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, helps to get our eyes off ourselves and onto you and onto others and how we can bless them, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be increasingly other-centered and not focused on the things that consume us, Lord, day by day. Thank you that you want to change us from inside out. And we want, Lord, your will to be done through our lives. So we commit this time to you. We ask you, you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've looked at these different Proverbs, we've looked at what Solomon has been writing. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived apart from Christ. He asked at the beginning of his reign, he asked for wisdom. And that blessed God that he asked for that. Because he wasn't supremely asking it for himself. He was asking it for the benefit of being able to rule God's people well. And God gave him wisdom. In fact, many, many people came from great distances to be able to come and listen to his wisdom. How much more should we be focused on the wisdom of of this book right here? God's eternal word. Far surpassing the wisdom of Solomon by far. To hear the words and the majesty and the greatness of the Lord Jesus' words, among many other ways that God revealed his revelation to his prophets and so forth. So, huge privilege to be able to do that. Now, as we've talked about, as we've gone through Proverbs verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we've seen that Solomon dispensed this wisdom and he passed these things on. But we've also noted at the end of his life, he kind of disobeyed or, or didn't put these, this wisdom into practice. And, and thus he came to the conclusion that life is just vanity. And there's really no purpose to it. 
in many ways he expressed that in the book of Ecclesiastes and and so for us as we look at this again I want to continuously remind us and I need the reminder myself as well that it's not just incumbent upon us to hear God's word but to put it into practice and so for us that means that we're going to be confronted with a decision at any given time are we going to obey God's word or are we going to disobey God's word and none of us obey perfectly we're all flawed we all sin every day the standard is perfection it remains perfection and we all fall short of that standard so what happens is as we surrender our lives to God each day he gives us more and more revelation he gives us more and more direction he speaks to our hearts more in a significant way we're we're sensing his voice we're recognizing our need for him more the more mature we are the more we repent i used to think it was the opposite as a new christian I remember thinking, man, I can't wait to get mature because I'm going to be repenting less and less and less. But in reality, it's more and more and more. Because the closer we get to God, the more we realize how sinful we are. Anytime someone saw God and a vision of him or whatever, they immediately said, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. At one point, the Apostle Peter, at the very beginning of the Lord Jesus' public ministry, said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He didn't say anything outwardly at that moment. But inside, he knew himself. And he knew how his thoughts were going and his, where his heart was and all those things. And he knew he was sinful. So for us, it, it, we have to be careful to depend upon God to give us the power and the grace each day to obey him. But he wants us to keep growing. He wants us to keep allowing him to stretch us. He wants us to become more and more godly all the time. You know, we can walk with the Lord for so long and not grow. And God never wants that. And he doesn't leave it up to us to decide how much we can grow. What I mean by that is we can be content with a certain level of Christian maturity. We can be okay. You know, I'm good. I'm, I know, I know this, enough about this, and I'm being used at a certain level, and I'm okay, and I'm content, and I don't, I, you know. But what happens is as we take up our cross daily and we follow him each day, that leads to where he wants us to go that day, and that leads to the next day and so forth. So he hasn't given us that option to decide how far we're going to go. He wants us to keep being stretched and stretched and stretched. And we're going to actually, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, we're told in the ages to come we will be exploring the riches of his grace. Even in new bodies in heaven we're going to be growing in the grace of God and exploring the riches of his grace. We're never going to stop growing. Our new bodies, our resurrection bodies, are going to be formulated in a way to, that, that allows us to grow in a way of getting, exploring the infinite God that we love and serve. And it's, it's, he's thought of everything. So we begin here in verse 1, chapter 20. He says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So obviously the person that's under the influence of alcohol or any other narcotic or any other thing like that is, is very difficult to counsel them. You ever tried to give wise counsel to someone that's under the influence of alcohol or whatever? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to give them any kind of wisdom. And it's a massive problem in our world. Alcoholism, opioid addiction is growing exponentially. It's in the news all over the place where you see these levels of opioid addiction and prescription drugs addiction going up and up and up and we see drunk driving deaths and injuries and we see families destroyed by drug addiction and all these things and all the time God says there's a better way notice we're told there in the verse that whoever is led astray by it is not wise there's a way that we can be led astray by by wine and strong drink and one of the ways that we can be led astray is to thinking that, for one, it could be for us, or I have it under control, and all these things, or it doesn't affect my life to the extent that maybe some may say. That's how we can be led astray by it. And I want to give you, because this is very relevant in our culture. Again, I've been mentioning this almost every week, that the world says that, that, that this book is not relevant for today. Give me a break. This, these problems were written 3,000 years ago. Talk about relevant. 
But I want to talk about drinking for a moment. And, and I do so trying to uh, represent the scriptures as accurately as I possibly can. I don't care what the conclusion is that God has. I want what he wants. And we should all want the same. I recognize there's a lot of controversy around this. And I recognize this could be very convicting or very uncomfortable or very encouraging to, to, to many of us here. So everything that we should teach from Scripture should, should be delivered by a vehicle of grace. It should be dispensed in a way that's encouraging, that gives hope. But we still have to look at what the standard is. We still have to look what Scripture says. So I'm going to touch on it for a few minutes here. Is it a sin to drink alcohol? It depends. I sound like a politician by saying that, um, but I'm not. Definitely not. It depends. I want to go through a few things, a few, a grid through which you can see if it's a sin for you at any given moment related to alcohol. First of all, if you have have had a problem with it in the past, it is likely going to be sin for you to drink, consume alcohol you had a problem with it in the past. And I say that based on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27, which tells us to not give place to the devil. We're told to not, to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. And and we're we're praying on a regular basis, Jesus told us to pray this way, to, to lead us not into temptation. To lead us not into temptation. Now God doesn't tempt anyone, we're told in scripture. But when we're praying that, we're asking him to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. We're praying to ask him, we're asking him to, to keep us as far away as possible from temptation, not just from within, but from without. And so why would we regularly pray, lead us not in temptation, when we are regularly leading ourselves into temptation? It doesn't make any sense. We should not place ourselves in a vulnerable position. This isn't just with alcohol, it's with anything that we have a proclivity towards that we're weak towards, or we have a history with, we have to be very careful with that because we could fall. And we're called in Scripture to take heed lest we fall, to not think that we're stronger or, or think that we have it all together or we put our guard down or any of those things. Nobody, nobody in a battle, no, no um, soldier in a battle puts his guard down for a moment. And so for us, it can be definitely sin for us if we have a history with that being an issue. So that has to be known right away. Now, the second issue is that we have to be careful, and it could be sin, if we possibly stumble a brother. Paul talks about this related to food, and its broader application is to anything, because God doesn't believe that we can stumble, you know, we shouldn't stumble people with food, with eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, which isn't really relevant in our culture, but then be okay with us stumbling brothers in other areas. That's not the case. The general principle is we should not stumble a brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us this in addition to Romans chapter 14. And I want to read a verse from Romans 14. It says this in verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. When Paul deals with this, he recognizes and he encourages us to think of what's more important, the person or my freedoms or my Christian liberties. It's always going to be another person. It's always going to be where if there's a possibility that I could stumble somebody, and, and so the, oftentimes I hear this, well, we'll always potentially stumble somebody. We're not ultimately responsible for people's behavior, so we just need to do what we want to do. And it's just like, no, that's not true. We have to do everything in our power to not stumble people. And this is how I see it a lot in our culture, just in today's uh, kind of way that we have our, the way we do things with social media and everything. We'll post pictures about drinking or about whatever it is, not recognizing there's other people that are watching that that could be stumbled by that, that could actually cause them to be tempted or cause them to like, wow, I, I thought that that wasn't okay for me, but maybe it is because so-and-so has this, and we're f- kind of flaunting our liberties in that sense, and we're not caring for the people and how it could harm them. It'd be very careful. So it can't stumble us. That's kind of the first thing that we talked about. But secondly, it can't stumble somebody else. And if we're stumbling other people and we know about it, to us that's sin. We're not called to stumble people whatsoever. 
Also, it's a sin if it violates our conscience. Paul wrote in, in this next verse in chapter 14 and verse 22, Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Where does our conscience come from? It comes from God. God's the one that gives us a conscience. Now, the culture can reinforce that conscience, but sometimes the culture will go against our conscience, and many times it does. So in any given situation, whatever it is, the issue is, whether it's a freedom or not, I could have my conscience be pricked, and I could actually not feel like that's okay for me for whatever reason. There's not a verse I'm quoting. I'm talking about things that are not explicit in Scripture per se, and, I'm, and I just don't feel like I should do it. If I go against that, I'm not, I'm not doing what's right. And God says, no, you shouldn't do it. Fourthly, it's a sin if you're under the power of it or addicted to it. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, which tells us this. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not plentiful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The key word in that verse is power. Will not be brought under the power of it. So it doesn't matter if it's a good thing. It could be broccoli. He does not want us to be under the power of broccoli. We get, if, if it's possible to get addicted to broccoli, I don't know if it is. Maybe some of you will send me an article talking about a 12-step group for people that are addicted to broccoli. I don't know. But we're not called to be addicted to things and be under the power of it. It could be anything. It could be entertainment. It could be food. Oh, it's getting quiet in here. It could be, um, it could be anything. We're not supposed to be under the power of anything. We're supposed to be free to serve, free to give, free to love, free to be salt and light in this world, free to preach the gospel. We can't do those things if we're under the power of things. So if you get under the power of something, then it's sin to you, even if it's a Christian liberty. Very important for us to see this. See, it's important to look at the whole entire word of God when you're looking at a subject. And, and it's so easy for us to look at one little verse and isolate it. And so often I hear related to alcohol, especially with Christians, well, it's, it's a sin to be drunk, but everything else is fine. Well, we're looking at scriptures that doesn't say everything else is fine. There's a definite grid through which I need to look at my life and my situation. Is it going to stumble? Is it going to stumble people? Am I going to be under the power of it? Is it going to violate my conscience? Is it, I mean, there's all kinds of things. Am I going to, did I have a problem with it in the past? All of that. Now, lastly, because there are other verses in this chapter. Um, lastly, it's a sin if you go to it to deal with life. First Peter 5, 7 tells us this. Cast your care upon him because he cares for you. See, we're told in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but by every glass of wine and Bud Light. No, it doesn't say that. It, you know, it, says, it says, be anxious for nothing, but with everything in prayer, by supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to go to it and go to alcohol instead of going to God? It means that you're to function in life, to deal with life, to deal with the pressures and the 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 things of life and all those things. Am I going to anything? It is not, not just alcohol, anything. It'd be Pez candy. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is. Like whatever it could possibly be. Okay, I'm letting you know a little bit about my vices here. Um, you turn your head back and the little thing comes out. I've always liked those, those, those candies. But anyway, no matter what it is in life, we are not supposed to go to those things to deal with life. We're supposed to go to God. So we can go to these things, and they can be fine in and of themselves, but we're not going to him to deal with life. And what we're doing is we're modeling, not just for our kids and our potential grandkids, but we're modeling that. And, and I'm not saying it's a purposeful thing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're in, you're, you're, this is all inadvertent. Well, you're modeling life is too big, and I need to go to these things instead of going to God because for whatever reason, God isn't going to deal with or help me in this way or not going to be enough or whatever. And so I have to go to these things to deal with life. And it could be food. It could be entertainment. It could be anything. So if, if you go to things to deal with life, God says that's not for you to go to. You're supposed to go to him. It's much easier. It's cheaper. It's better in every way. It's healthy. 
What if this? What if our children and grandchildren, when they saw we were having a horrible day and all these things were hitting us, they saw us go to our room and go to prayer or go to Bible study or seek God or have a time with God, have some devotions, extra devotions or whatever, instead of going to any other, any other thing that we may go to? What if they saw that on a regular basis? What would that train them to do? It would train them that when things get difficult, I go to God. I don't go to everything else because God is enough. And, and unfortunately, there's been leaders that have given the wrong message and say, as long as you're not getting drunk, you can do whatever you want. That's not true. That's not biblical here. So we have to recognize the goal is not to fixate on my liberties and try to get as much liberty in my life as possible related to all these behaviors, but actually be focused on how does it affect others? How does, what does God think about it? What does all of his words say? How does it affect my ministry? How does it affect the people that are watching my life and coming to conclusions about God based on my life? It's something that's very searching. It's not being legalistic. Again, I gave you scripture for every single one of those things. It's not man-made rules. Can you have a drink? Yes, you could probably have a drink. If you go through all those things and everything looks good, you probably could. But for me, it's like, what's the point? Like, that's so much effort to go through and make sure that everything is right. I'm like, why even bother with it? I'll just have a, I'll just have a V8 or something. And then when I forget, I'll, you know what I'll say, right? I could have had a V8. No, I'm just dating myself. Okay. There was a point where Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. Now, they didn't have the kind of medicines that we had today, and that was a way that they could deal with some stomach issues. But it's not a sin to ingest alcohol, or else he wouldn't have told them that. But again, all these things have to be weighed out and, and, and you know, prayerfully considered and all of that. The most important principle is, am I under the control of the Holy Spirit? Am I under the influence of the Holy Spirit, or am I under the influence of anything else? Oprah, or, you know, sports, or or food, or, you know, that sandwich at Arby's, or, again, more things coming out here. Um, but, you know, it's like God wants us to be in the control of the Holy Spirit. He wants the, him to be able to be, you, you know, leaned upon at any given moment and empower my life and, and, and all those things. We're, we're supposed to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, not be drunk with wine, it says, as, in, as is dissipation, but be being filled. That means continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we're under the influence of all these other things, how much are we being a witness? How much are we being distinct from the world? How much are we being salt and light? How much are we praying? How much are we reading the Bible? How much are we sharing our faith? How much are we serving other believers? Not, probably not very much when we're under the control of those things because it quenches the, the spirit. Okay, verse 2. The wrath of a king is like a roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. And this is speaking of authority, governmental authorities, any kind of authority, but you know, it's talking about a monarchy. We don't have a monarchy here as much as some people would like to think we do. Um, every president wants to be a monarchy in, in their heart probably, but um, you know, we don't have it. We have a republic. And, and so it's a little bit you know, foreign to us when we look at kings and we think about kings and monarchies, but the broader application is is authority and, and to not unnecessarily provoke people in authority. And we have to recognize that whoever does that sins against our own lives. Verse 3, it is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Now I used to think quarreling was kind of fun. As a new believer, man, I was always right. It was just people all around me that just seemed to need some help with understanding some things. And I would argue and argue and argue and argue and waste all this time and everything. And then when social media came around, I started getting into Facebook debates and never had anything good come from one of those. <laughs> um, and it's just a big waste of time. But this is in the context. This more has to do with conflict between people, like a, getting involved in conflicts. And we've seen God deal with this as we've gone through uh, Proverbs. We've seen him talk about avoiding conflict and all of that. But he says it's honorable for a man to stop striving. That's talking about conflict with somebody. And in this world, we often think that it's honorable to, 
to keep going, to, to stand our ground and to fight and all these things related to uh, arguments with people and all of that. And he says, no, it's the opposite. It's honorable for man to stop striving, to stop arguing. You know, sometimes it's really hard when you believe you're right with, with, with everything in you to walk away. That's sometimes the, really the only answer to a situation. It's just to walk away. Because you know, if I stay here, bad things are going to happen. I'm going to say something really stupid or get myself inflame the situation even more, and God doesn't want that, so I'm going to do the honorable thing, and I'm going to stop striving, because he says, look, at the end of verse 3, since any fool can start a quarrel, anyone can start a quarrel, that doesn't take skill, it doesn't, it's not the honorable thing, what takes skill is to be able to walk away and use self-control, especially when you know that staying there and saying anything more than what you've already said is actually not going to really contribute to much. So, very important for us. How is this relevant today? Let's just talk about marriages. (laughs) Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the day end in an argument. I obeyed that for many years, and then at some point, I just stopped doing that just a few times, and boy, could I see the difference in how unwise it was to, to ignore what Scripture said. So we have to use self-control. Verse 4. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Now we have seen so much in Scripture in these, in these Proverbs about laziness and having a good work ethic. And in chapter 26, we're going to see him say that the fool says, there's a lion in the streets, so I'm not going to go out. And to me, that seems like a pretty good reason. You know, to, I'm not going to go out and brawl with a lion. Um, but it, here he says, winter will not plow because of winter. And he's talking about not being willing to sow the seeds at the time when you're supposed to sow the seeds there. He doesn't want to do it. It's inconvenient. It's hard to do it in winter. It's cold. I'm not as comfortable while working and all of that. And, and this type of person, this person always has an excuse. I remember in high school, so my, my dad died when I was four, and then my mom died when I was 17, in between my junior and senior year in high school, and my friend's parents became my guardians. And so my whole senior year in high school was living in another home, and my friend's parents, the man was a, was a radiologist and all of that, and I actually had some structure in my life for the very first time. And I remember them trying to help me with discipline, and I never had discipline before. My mom was not a disciplinarian at all, unfortunately, and so I didn't know what that felt like. But I remember getting in these arguments, we were talking about arguments a little earlier, getting in the argument with, um, with her, her name is, her name is Jeannie, I was getting an argument with Jeannie about why I was okay to not do certain things. And I, I was lazy. That's what I was. I was lazy. And she goes, you know what, Patrick? That's what she called me. Actually, she called me Verf. That was one of my nicknames back then because her son was named Patrick. So she didn't know how to tell us apart. So she called me Verf. But you know what, Verf? You always have an excuse for everything. And, and I would say, well, let me tell you the reasons why I have excuses. And I wasn't even thinking about what I was saying. And she just started laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing at me? Because you're giving me excuses for your excuses. I'm like, no, they're not excuses. This literally verbatim. They're not excuses. They're reasons. And, and, and she goes, they're excuses. You could have done these things and you didn't do them. And I hated hearing that. Um, and it's just unbelievable the distance between when you're you know, in high school and early, late teens and early 20s and how you see things when you're in your 30s and 40s. And I just can't believe that it was the same person talking to her as, as today. But, um, you know, for us, it, laziness can come in many different forms. And when God's stretching us and he's calling us to greater and greater things, the ways that we can be lazy changes because our callings can change and, and the things that he has us in the middle of can require us to do greater and greater things for preparation, greater and greater things that, you know, to, to guard our lives, our minds, our hearts, and all of that. And so because he's calling us to higher things, 
then what, what his definition of lazy for us can change as well. And he can say, look, I want you to be growing in this area. I want you to focus on this area. I want you to grow uh, in this doctrine or this, this whatever it is. And us not doing the things he wants us to do as he's stretching us and calling us to deeper things can constitute laziness. And we would never think that we're lazy because we're, we're, not, we're still doing the things we've always done, but yet our calling has changed or the things he has us doing has changed. And so because of that, we have to be careful for what the, that changing definition could look like and to ask him, Lord, what does laziness look like in my life? That's a good thing to do. What do, you, how, do you, how would you define me being lazy? And be interesting to hear what comes back. I've done it before, that you better get a pad of paper out because he'll tell you. Jesus worked hard. Jesus modeled a solid work ethic. They were so exhausted, there were times where they didn't have time to eat, we're told, in the Gospels. And he, and he said, there's a time you need to get away. You've been going and all this, let's go on the other side. And there were times we allowed that rest, but they were... You ever wonder why? I remember as a new Christian seeing the Lord Jesus in the Gospels falling asleep during a storm. And going, man, I thought I, I slept deeply. What in the, how could he sleep in the middle of this massive storm where professional fishermen think they're going to die? How could he possibly be asleep? And I realized at some point that he was so tired physically, humanly, because of how hard he worked, how hard he ministered, how much he prayed at night when people, other people were sleeping. So our definition of laziness can be completely different from what his definition is. And, and it speaks to the fact that there's appropriate activity for every season. And that changes because my seasons in, the, in, in my life change. And he'll, he'll tell us what those things are supposed to look like. Verse 5, counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You know, in places like Israel and the Middle East and so forth, or any ancient culture where they have these wells, when you go up to a well or you look at a well from a distance, you're seeing it on the horizon, you don't always know how deep that well is until you get up to it and you look inside and you look down and you can get a, a general idea how deep it is. And this is the imagery that Solomon is drawing upon that every single person would understand that would be reading this. And what he's talking about is wise people that God has placed in our lives, especially the ones that he's placed in our lives. It's up to us. It's a, it's, it's dep- you know, he depends upon us knowing who these people are. That's the first thing. We need to recognize who are the wise people that God has placed in my life. And then he says, notice the last part of verse 5, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Because counsel, wise counsel and wise people is in their heart. And they're not always looking to dispense it. They're not always looking to advertise that I'm a wise person. In fact, the wiser they are, the less they talk about themselves. Because they're humble. So we as believers have to recognize who these people are and then it's up to us to draw it out which means that he's called us to be proactive with recognizing this person is wise from God. I recognize that that God's placed him in my life and I want to get everything I can out of them because I don't know how long they're going to be in my life. And so I'm going to draw everything that I possibly can out of that person. He says a man of understanding will do that. That's a good thing for us to remember as believers. Let's take advantage of the people God's placed in our lives and let's draw out of them every bit of wisdom. And you know what? Again, like I said this last week, one of the hardest occasions for us to be teachable is the areas of our expertise. So it's hard for me to be taught about overeating. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, um, you know, it's... Just kidding. But it's... Whatever our areas of expertise are, we have to recognize that God wants to further make us more wise, but we can't allow that to happen, or we won't allow that to happen, if we're not teachable in those areas. Verse 6. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? That's a rhetorical question. It presupposes that we understand already that it's very difficult to find a faithful man. Most men are easy to find because they are advertising their own goodness. 
There's billboards above their heads, so to speak. I'm good, I'm good, I'm all good. You know, we don't say all good or all that in a bag of chips anymore. We definitely don't say that, especially from pulpits, if you're wise. But, um, you know, you don't have an advertisement saying, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You don't do that. And I, I, you know, young people, you're here today. You're in, the, you're in the service with us, especially you ladies. Who can find a faithful man? And sometimes I've talked to young men, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for that godly woman, the godly woman that just sweats scripture references, you know? She just is godly. She almost levitates above the ground. She walks across the water half the time when she goes to the lake. You know, I mean, she's godly, and, and she's going to see this guy. She's going to see this guy. But yet this guy is not faithful, is not godly. And why would a godly woman ever want someone that's not a godly man? Oh, <laughs> they think about that. Oh, yeah, that's right. They would want a godly man. That's right. So you need to be the godly man that that kind of godly woman that you're describing would want. You don't prepare for marriage by looking for the other spouse. You prepare for marriage by being the godliest person you can be and being led by the Spirit day by day in what he's called you to do. God has no problem bringing you that spouse if that's what he has for you. No problem. You don't have to strive whatsoever. So it speaks to us. And also for us that maybe, obviously it's true for women too, wives as well, but he's called us to faithfulness. That's something that we don't see in our culture very much. It's getting, it's diminishing, seeing that in our culture. Faithful people. They're not going to have their commitment based on circumstances. They're locked on and they're going to be faithful no matter what. That is rare in our culture. And it's getting more and increasingly rare. That's why God calls us to be faithful. You know, he says that we're going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and talented, not good and charismatic, not good and gifted, not good and all these other things that are great things. He says good and faithful. You know why? Because we have control over how faithful we're going to be. We don't have control over our gifts. We don't have control over our charisma. We don't have control over where God's placed us in life in many ways. But we do have control over our faithfulness. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So he's given us the capacity at any given moment to ask for his power to have self-control in whatever situation in which I find myself. And it's beautiful. He has all the resources possible. Verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. So verse 6 talks about a man that proclaims. That's talk. And verse 7 speaks of a righteous man who walks. Young women that aren't married, look for the young man who walks, not talks. Talk is cheap. Look for the young man who does the right thing when he, when he doesn't realize you're looking at him. When you're assess, he doesn't realize you're assessing him, but he's doing the right thing. Look how he treats his family. Look how he treats his mother. Look how he treats his father. Look how his integrity is when he's not being watched. That's how you can get the best assessment of a young man. He walks in his own integrity. And his children, notice that, his children are blessed after him. When you teach your children by being an example, you're teaching them something that is far more valuable than anything they can imagine. And you're also teaching your grandkids even before they exist. You're teaching two generations just by being the person that God's called you to be. God knows what he's talking about. Verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. Now, it's important to know that the word scatter there is the Hebrew word that is translated winnows. So when you're separating the wheat from the chaff, that's the word he's talking about related to scatters. And, he's ta- and it's talking about a king on a throne of judgment He separates all evil with his eyes. He's looking with his eyes, and he's deciding things way before you can even have a chance to open your mouth. He's already assessing the situation. He's already looking for things, and we have to be aware of that related to those that are in authority. 
You know, the kings were called in Deuteronomy 17 to write their own copy of the law of Moses down by hand themselves and read it every, every day, read part of it every single day. And God called them to do that because they would know his word and they would know the standard by which everything could be measured against. And it was, it's very wise for um, us to read his word and to know his standard. Verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? I think you could add the word legitimately. <laughs> who can legitimately say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Anybody here that can, that, that can make your heart clean by yourself or be pure, purify yourself from sin? No, none of us can. That comes from the heart of a prideful person who doesn't understand how righteousness works. And all day, every day, this world says, I can cleanse, cleanse myself from my sin. I can, I'm pure, purified from my own sin. But Scripture says something entirely different. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we cannot cleanse ourselves. You know, this can even creep into our own hearts as Christians, thinking that, well, if I just try and make this commitment to do better in my own strength, then somehow I can show God that I'm worthy. And once you start talking about me making myself worthy, you're, you're in trouble already. We can never make ourselves worthy, but we can think that. I'll do good, God. I'll, I'll do really well this whole rest of this week, and I'll make up for what I did. See, that's trying to make your heart clean and purifying yourself from sin. You can't, even as a Christian, you can't make things right and undo the sin that we've committed and make things right by doing good deeds. We know that as before we come to Christ that we can't become a Christian by being a good person, but somehow we think, and sometimes in our in our minds as Christians, that we can make ourselves a better person on our own apart from Christ. It's not true. Jesus says the answer to sin is confession and repentance. That's the answer. He's not keeping score in the sense that, well, if you do better this week, then I'll, you know, that's a works-based salvation. And that's not biblical whatsoever. We're, we're children of the king. We're, child, child of, uh, we're children of God. And he loves us, and he wants to make us more and more holy, but that happens as we yield our hearts to him on a day-by-day basis. Verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We've seen many verses in Proverbs related to honest business practices. Do you know that there are some Christian businesses that will purposely try to not do business with another Christian business because they've been burned so many times, and they know that they can't sue them biblically? So they purposely try to do business with unbelievers. That is a shame. That is a shame. We should be the most honest business people that the world's ever seen. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not like that. You know, Jesus, before he became, before he was baptized and all of that, and before he started his public ministry, he was a carpenter. That was his trade. He didn't, be, he didn't start his, his ministry until he was 30. So before all of that time, he was being raised and growing up as Joseph's son, the carpenter, and he learned that trade. The Jews said, if you, do, if you, teach your, if you don't teach your kids to do a trade, your, your male sons to do a trade, you're teaching them to beg. And so he was taught that. I know that Jesus did not rip anybody off. I know that Joseph didn't rip anybody off, didn't model that for him. And, and so, but he was, he was this, obviously the son of God before he was water baptized and started his public ministry. But when he was baptized, the, 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 the voice from heaven came and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the tense there is in whom I am already pleased. He hadn't, committed, he hadn't performed one miracle yet. He hadn't done one, he hasn't taught one thing related to his public ministry. He was already pleasing in part, obviously, because he was the son I recognize that. But also his, his work ethic and who he was and the character and all those things was, was, was great. It had high character and, and treated people well and did the right thing and all those things even before he started his public ministry. God's called us to be honest. And he says if we're not, it's an abomination to the Lord. It's pretty heavy. Pretty heavy words there. 
I love the weight of it. Verse 11, even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. The word child there in Hebrew covers infancy all the way through being you know, a young adult. And, and so he, he's saying even a child is known by his deeds. So if a child is known by his deeds, especially in supermarkets when they're two years old, they flop on the ground and start foaming at the mouth and you know, having a, in a tantrum and all that. If they are known by their deeds, how much more are we known by our deeds? So it's important for us to recognize that. And it should be said that if a child's having the terrible twos when they're seven, there's a problem. God calls us to be disciplinarians and to train them up in the way that they should go. But it's the same, it's equally true as Christians if we walk with the Lord for a long time, but yet we're still immature and not growing. God doesn't want that either. That's actually even more tragic than seeing a child having a tantrum beyond the times when that would be normal for them. And God doesn't want it. Verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. I guess evolution's not true. (laughs) He made them both. You know, we can't even make a camera that's like the eye. And all that what the eye does, and taking in all the information and transmitting it and all of that, and the way it reacts to things, we can't make a camera today that is like that. But yet all this happened by random chance. Nothing plus nothing plus chance and time equaled all this obvious design. Sorry, I don't have that much faith. I don't. There's design. So he says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And, it, and it's, I believe it speaks to the fact that if he made those things, then they should be sanctified or set apart to him in terms of what we take in, what we see, what we allow to come into our, our minds and our hearts and all of that, and our, what we listen to and all of those things make a huge impact on our lives. If they're from him, then we should be good stewards of those things. Wait till we get to heaven. Then we'll see what the eye was really made for, what the ear was really made for. You know, there was a point in time where the Apostle Paul was translated to heaven, caught up to the third heaven. And he said, he didn't say the things that I saw wouldn't be lawful to, to even utter. He said the things that I heard wouldn't be lawful to utter. And it very well could be that God didn't allow him to see anything, but he only allowed him to hear. I don't know. But I know that the full expression of why God intended ears and eyes is going to be realized when we get our new body with our new eyes and new ears and we see all that we see in Revelation related to the beauty and the sounds and all of that of, of, of heaven. Can't wait. Verse 13. Do not love sleep, oh man, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Again, the work ethic People that love to sleep, they seem to have problems with working in general. So we have to be really, really not we just on all over it related to a strong work ethic and being willing to model that for our children and all of that. And just it's just we have to work hard. There's no way around it. Paul said, "If a man will not work, he will not eat." He didn't say if he cannot work, he will not eat. He said, "If he will not work." He cannot eat. That presupposes he's able and he has the opportunity. And so for us, it's very important for us to be the hardest workers that that we possibly can be. Verse 14, it's good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. And this will, when you're in the Middle East and you're in Israel and you see these, it's part of that whole culture where people argue for the price. You know, and people argue for a whole hour and a half with a shopkeeper about the price of something. And I'm like, do you realize that with the exchange rate you're offering, you're arguing for a nickel? You know, it's like, why are you doing this? But you're offensive to them if you don't argue with them. If you just say, no, that's too expensive, walk out. They get very, very offended. They want you to haggle. They want you to, to fight with, with them. I remember I was in Israel and there was a shopkeeper and we were trying to talk him down and and... We're going back and forth, and, and, and finally he just goes, okay, here, here's my keys. Take the store. Fine, it's yours. I'm like, this is a little bit hyperbole. You know, I mean, come on. 
You know, and I heard one pastor talk about it one time, and this guy had this really thick accent. He's like, I want to talk to you down, you know, and, and they're going arguing back and forth. And after they're all done, after like 30 minutes, then his accent went away, and he goes, so how long are you guys here? <laughs> it's like not even the real accent. Like the whole thing was not real. Anyway, so, uh, you know, so he comes and he says, this, this deal is good for nothing, you know, and I didn't get the better end of the deal. And then he walks away boasting and saying how much he got a great deal. That's just... That's just their culture, and that's just how business goes sometimes. Verse 15, there is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. How many times have we seen him talk about ruby, about knowledge rather, about wisdom and how valuable it is? And he talks about gold here and the multitude of these jewels, these rubies. And that's my birthstone, you know, so I like rubies. Um, I don't even know what that means to have something be your birthstone, um, the significance of it. But, you know, as great as those things are, he says, the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. And again, it goes back to the person that speaks wisdom is more precious and more beautiful than gold or rubies. And it's not just on our lips, but also the lips of the wise people that we talked about that you recognize are from God and their well is so deep with knowledge and you take advantage of that and you ask them, all these things that only wisdom and living a life that's been godly and all of those things could ever um, know about. And you're recognizing this is where the value really lies, is this person. People really are the treasure, aren't they? People really are the treasure. They're the treasure to God. We're the only ones that have been made in his image. Sorry, as much as you love your dog or cat, or whatever rodent you have, or whatever horse, or whatever. It has not been made in the image of of God. People have been. So that's where the treasure is related to God, and that should be our treasure as well. And we need God's wisdom in in order to be able to minister to people and to live the life he's called us to live. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for another feast in your word. We thank you for your amazing word, Lord, that is so important and so vital and so supernatural in our lives. We recognize you've spoken in many different ways to many people this morning. Help us, God, to appropriate these things in a way that pleases you. Help us to put them into practice. Help us, Lord, to be students of your word, not just for knowledge purposes, but to have you change our lives, to have us live a different kind of life. Help us to be the most patient, loving, wise, sober-minded, hardworking, submitted to authority disciples that we can possibly be for your glory. We thank you that you've already done so much in us and through us, and we know that the best is yet to come. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.